Good morning. All right. You know, one of the questions as a pastor um, that I get asked that I get asked often is, when did you know that you wanted to be a pastor? When did you know that you wanted to go into ministry? That God called you into ministry? And the answer that I usually give is pretty straightforward. I say, I get, a, I got an opportunity to live with my small group leader in college for one year. And he not only affirmed my call into ministry, you see, for that year, I was privately praying, oh, God, please send me a sign. Uh, if you want me to go into ministry, please send me a sign. And, and my small group leader uh, affirmed my call to ministry. He also showed me what it meant for that year to be a man who followed Christ in all things. Because up to that point, I had never seen someone take Christ so seriously who really loved God's word and wanted to follow it in all aspects of his life. It was a deeply formative year for me. And the most remarkable and crazy thing is I should have never been his roommate in the first place. Because he was a senior living with other seniors. And I was a freshman. I was a foolish freshman that didn't know that you have to apply to live in the dorms. And so fall quarter of my freshman year comes and I have nowhere to stay. And so I am desperately looking for housing, and I end up with some pretty suspect characters. And I move homes, 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 and I eventually end up with my small group leader out at an apartment in Westwood. And some will call it coincidence. Some will call it lucky. Easy for us to brush it off and say, hey, it all ended up working out for you. But as I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but to think about just how everything fell into place for me. You see, not just the housing, but I got to live with him. A year after I had accepted Christ, I was lost. He impacted my faith so deeply, so much so, affirmed my call into ministry, and here I am standing here in front of you today as a foolish freshman. Didn't know you have to apply to live in the dorms. And I have the privilege of preaching God's word to you. I found myself repeatedly thinking, man, God is so kind to me. God is so good to me. How is it that the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which he upholds the heavens and the earth, he rules over them so much so that every leaf, every blade, rain and drought, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us, to you and I, not by chance, not by coincidence, but by his tender fatherly hand. Maybe the term that you can think of when you hear of these things is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. And that is an appropriate term, but there is an, a more apt and especially a, a term that is, we're going to see highlighted, not just in today's text, but over the weeks to come. And the term that I think is highlighted is the providence of God. You see, God is sovereign. He is in control over everything. But the providence of God, the providence of God refers to all of God's might, his power, his sovereign decree, his strength being exercised specifically for those who belong to him, for his children. How the power of our God can play out in the lives of you and I. 
Now, the story of Joseph is a popular one. And it is easy for us to focus on Joseph as the main character of these stories. But my hope is that as we run through these popular passages, that we will be able to track God's providence, his almighty and gentle hand, not only in Joseph's life, but in the lives of all of God's children, yours and mine included. If you take a look at the insert today, I've organized and outlined our passage for us into three different sections in an attempt to better organize our time together today. And we're going to run through the passage, and we're going to go break them off into these three different sections and see what the scripture has to say about the character of God for us today. So the first point is this, a beloved son. Starting with verse 2, we are told here that Joseph is 17 years old. We are told that he and his brothers are shepherds. And verse 3 tells us that Jacob, the father, favors and loves Joseph more than any of his other sons. And the reason is because Joseph was the son of his old age. If you remember, Joseph is the firstborn of his favored wife, Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. And yet he had another wife named Leah, who gave him ten sons. And all we know about Leah is that she had weak eyes, which means that Jacob didn't really like her that much. And so Joseph is the son from the one that he truly loves. And so he dotes him. He puts all of his love onto him. He favors him, and it is clear for everyone to see. And you have to ask yourself, how many instances of favoritism have we already seen in the scripture thus far? So many times. Ishmael and Isaac. Leah and Rachel, Esau and Jacob, Jacob, the one who is involved here, he should have known that favoritism never ends well in the family. That showing favoritism to one child will bring factions into the family. We don't need to look into the scriptures to know that this is true. We see it in our lives. I have two girls, Maya and Zoe. Maya is my firstborn, Zoe the second one. When we first brought Zoe home, Maya was belated. Elated, sorry, belated. <laughs> She's elated. She's so excited. Over the weeks, we, we thought we were so lucky. Man, Maya is such a sweet little girl. So gentle and kind to Zoe. And one day, Zoe does something silly. We think it's silly. We're new, you know, she's a newborn. She just looks at us or something, and we think it's just the best thing in the world. And we're laughing, and we're just cackling with our bellies. We think it's so funny. And I look around the room, and I see Maya in the corner, and she is glaring at us. I was like, oh, shoot. I got to be careful. We all know what favoritism does in the family. And here we are told that Jacob has a favorite son, and he is not shy about it. In fact, he shows his favoritism and his favor for Joseph by giving him a coat of many colors. It is an extravagant, extravagant, exuberant, and expensive gift. Not only that, it, it was likely symbolic as well. To gift a coat like this was to signify a handing over of authority. It most likely served to Joseph and to his brothers that Jacob, the father, was going to bless Joseph and none of the others. His blessing, his authority will go to Joseph. 
And so verse 4 tells us, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And we can understand why. And then there are the dreams. Take a look at verses 5 through 8 with me. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph has two dreams. Here in verses 5 to 7 and another in verses 9. And both dreams, ironically, are interpreted correctly by his brothers. And they're furious. Because Joseph's dreams are signifying a time where Joseph thinks that all of their brothers will come down and bow down, not before the oldest brother, but before Joseph. And so verse 5 says it again. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And if that's not enough, verse 8, again, they hated him even more. They hate this guy. And finally, in verse 11, it says they are jealous of Joseph. Brings us to point number two. The beloved son is sent for the mocking brothers. Take a look at verses 12 through 17 with me. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him, Joseph, wandering in the fields. And the man asked Joseph, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, Joseph said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Joseph is sent out on a mission to go and find his brothers. And just to get a gauge of the scale of the distance that is being covered here by Joseph, Shechem is 50 miles away from Canaan. So it's not just like, okay, I'll walk over and I'll go check on them. 50 miles away. This kind of journey would have taken days weeks. And we're told the brothers are not at Shechem. Joseph is described as being lost in the fields. And by random happen chance, a stranger finds Joseph in the fields, lost. And the stranger asks him, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Oh, your brothers. How many? Eleven? Oh, random. I, I remember, I recall seeing a group of eleven people, eleven men in the field. Maybe it was them. Oh, I also remember that they said that they were going to go to Dothan. Maybe they were your brothers. Maybe you should go to Dothan. And so Joseph travels another 15 miles from Shechem to Dothan. And Joseph is sent out on a mission to get his brothers. And as he goes, he ends up further and further away from Jacob, his father, from his home, from his position as the beloved son, and verse 18 through 19 tells us that as, Jake, as Joseph draws closer to his brothers, it says, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. And you can hear the sneering, the mocking in their voices. Here comes the Lord of the dreams. That is the literal translation. Here he comes, the one who thinks he is Lord in his own dreams. There's a deep irony here as they are spiteful and scornful of God's plans. They don't want to see it come to, see it come to fruition. And in their hatred and contempt, the brothers conspire to kill Joseph, and they concoct a lie to cover it all up. And verse 20 tells us, We will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Again, you can hear the anger, the hatred, the bitterness. We will see what will become of your dreams. They strip Joseph of his robe. They rip it off his back. The robe that symbolized Jacob's love for Joseph. They throw Joseph into the empty pit with every intent to leave him to die. And I love how the scriptures capture this, captures this for us. The callousness of the brothers. The depth of their mockery and contempt displayed in verse 25. After they betray their brother, after they beat him, after they humiliate him, after they rip him off his clothes, they throw him into the pit. Verse 25 says, then they sat down to eat. They were so hungry from humiliating their brother. Later on in Genesis, the brothers of Joseph will reveal a detail that is left out here. In Genesis 42, 21, they're standing before Joseph in Egypt and they're whispering to one another, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen to him. You see what's happening here? They beat him, they mock him, they throw him into the pit, they sit down to eat, and while they are eating, they can hear the pleas from their very brother from the pit. Guys, have mercy on me. You're not going to forsake me, are you? Are you really going to leave me here to die? Please, pull me out. Point number three. A beloved son turns into a servant. While they are eating, the brothers notice a caravan of traders, and they decide, you know what? We don't even need to have blood on our hands. Let's sell him as a slave. He'll be gone, and we'll have some extra cash. And they sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, the Bible tells us. And verse, 30, verse 36 tells us at the end of chapter 37 that ultimately Joseph will end up in Egypt as a slave, as a servant to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And if you are tracking along in chapter 37, by the time you get to the end of 37, it would seem as if Joseph has lost everything. He has lost his coat. He has lost his blessing. He has lost his sign of favor, his favorite position as the beloved. He is now a slave. He is far away from home. He is far away from his family. He is far away from his father. And yet, you and I cannot help but to read this story in light of what we know 
will come later on in Genesis. In fact, here is how Joseph himself will summarize it to his brothers later on when he is raised up in Egypt. He will say, you know that painful experience of being mocked by your own brothers, by you guys? You know the humiliation I had to endure when you betrayed me, throwing me into the pit? The sorrow that I had to wrestle with as you guys sold me to be a slave? When I found myself in prison, rising to second-hand command in Egypt, all the roller coasters of emotions that I had to deal with? Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. You notice what Joseph does not say. Notice that Joseph does not say, you meant, for, you meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. That's not what he says. Even though that's probably partly true, what Joseph says is even more than that. Not that God reacted and saw the brothers doing one evil thing, and then God, like a chess player, came in and was like, nope, checkmate. You can do this, I'm going to do this. Turn it into something good. Maybe that's something that you and I are tempted to think about. But what Joseph says here about God is so much more deep and encompassing than that. Joseph says, you meant that for evil? At that very same time you were meaning it for evil, God was meaning, not just responding. He was meaning the very same activity for good. Namely, that Joseph ending up in Egypt was exactly where he needed to be. Because that's where God intended him to be. That God would use Joseph and what was done to him, the betrayal, the being mocked, being sold by his own brothers, the loss of status as the beloved son to a slave, to a servant. It brought him to Egypt. And what you and I will see in the coming weeks is that it's exactly in Egypt where God will ultimately save his people from famine, give them shelter, give them an opportunity to grow and to thrive as a nation. At the same time, you were doing all the wicked and evil things, Joseph says. God was acting through those things for his own good purposes. We see the providence. We see God's providence here. His hand over Joseph's life. So much so, so obvious, so evident that Joseph can say something like this. And yet it is not fair for us. Not fair to Joseph to discount his pain. It was all very real for Joseph. The circumstances were all very real for him. The betrayal that he felt, the pain that he carried, all very real. I can almost guarantee you that at no point in the bottom of the pit was Joseph thinking, well, this is all going exactly to plan. No way. Joseph did not always know the end of the story. Joseph did not always know 
where God was, what God was doing, if God was even there with him. And if we are honest with ourselves, every one of us in this room, we hear about the providence of God. And it is still so very difficult for us to wave away the questions that we feel in our pain, in our confusion, in our suffering. We find it so difficult to wave away the questions of why did my husband, why did my wife have to get sick? Why did this have to happen to me, to my family? Why did my parents have to get divorced? Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get into that school? How come I loved her, but she didn't love me back? How come my son, how come my daughter isn't turning out to be who I thought he or she would turn out to be? Why is this happening? Some of us in this room very well know the feeling of being stuck, where nothing in us can say, this is exactly what God has in plan and his goodness for me. And everything in us is screaming, what in the world is going on? God, where are you? Please answer me. How? How do we reconcile the very pain, the tangible suffering, the confusion that we feel in our lives with the promise that God is working for our very good in those same exact hurts? As the sovereign God who in his providence is holding us in his tender and gentle hands. How? Melvin Tinker, in his book, the book is called Intended for Good, writes something that I think is very helpful for us. It's a long quote, but I'm going to emphasize uh, the parts that I want for us to, to, to emphasize, I guess. It reads this, quote, In God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen not to tell us everything we would like to know. Some things are secret and known only to God alone. However, God has told us enough so that we can trust him. God has spoken not to satisfy our curiosity, but to enable us to live, to follow him faithfully. And here are the words that we want to, to really hone in on. God will not tell you everything that you wish to know, but he has told you enough, so that on the basis of what God has shown you, you can trust God in and for the things that he has not shown you. Let me read that one more time. God has told you enough. He has shown us enough. So that on the basis of what God has already shown and told you, you and I can trust God in and for the things that he has not yet shown you. And so for the question is, is it, what, what is it then? What have you shown us, God? What is it that you have revealed to us? You have already told us. You see, up to this point, all throughout the Bible, we're only in Genesis 37. But up to this point, we have seen failure after failure, sin after sin, every attempt made by man to thwart God's plan for salvation. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the perfect garden. Pure harmony, pure bliss. And he says, you will be my people. And Adam, in his sinful rebellion, ate of the one tree that he was not supposed to eat of. And so sin and brokenness enter through Adam and Eve. But God says, 
it matters not. My plan will still move forward. And so in Genesis 3.15, he says to Eve, he makes her a promise. You, one day, will have a great, 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 great grandchild. And he will eventually be born. And his name will be Jesus. And he will crush the serpent's head. God's promises are too great that even Adam's sin cannot thwart his promise and plan. We move forward to Abraham, where God makes a covenant, a promise with him in Genesis 12. And he promises Abraham, Abraham, I am going to give you a land of promise. I'm going to give you so much children that they will number the stars in the sky. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust his promise. And he takes matters into his own hands. He sleeps with his servant Hagar. He has another son. And yet God's promise still moves forward because God's plans are too great and too powerful. Then we end up with Jacob, whose name means the deceiver. Takes the fur of a goat, puts it on his arms, to make himself hairy so he can lie to his father and steal the birthright that belonged to his brother. He shows unabashed favoritism for his beloved son, Joseph, so much so that it fractures his family. And we end up in Genesis 37 with Joseph sent out by his father to go and find his brothers, thrown into a pit, mocked, humiliated there, cried out for mercy, ignored, sold by his brothers for shekels of silver, the beloved son turned into a servant, but in God's plan, in God's promise to his people, in God's providence, Joseph would eventually be raised up to save his people. What have we seen by God? In all of this brokenness and sin, God is moving. Weaving together the sin, the disappointments, the evil, the suffering, the pain into a beautiful tapestry of love, mercy, and grace that will ultimately and eventually be proclaimed and shown to us in the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. Proclaimed on the cross. Friends, Jesus Christ also sent out by his Father on a mission. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. For who? For his brothers. For you and I. And he would also be sold for shekels of silver. His robe would also be torn off, John 19 tells us. He will also be thrown into a pit, the pit of death, death on a cross. He will also cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you going to ignore me? And at that very moment, the father would turn his face from his beloved son and pour down his wrath on his beloved for your sins and mine. So that he would save us. You say, what a coincidence. No. It's providence. The hand of God moving throughout our sin. What is it that God has shown us again and again and again, time after time after time? It's that friends, our hurts, our disappointment, our sin, hung up on the cross of Jesus Christ to bring about the only message of hope truth, security, and comfort so we can rest assured that we are in the Father's hands and nothing outside of his will can move. It's the providence of God. Let me end with this illustration here. On a cold fall afternoon in 1982, 
78,000 fans crowded into the University of Wisconsin's football stadium. They gathered to watch their beloved Badgers face off against the Spartans of Michigan State. The game wasn't going so well for Wisconsin, but something odd kept happening. At sudden random points throughout the game, the home crowd would burst out into cheers and applause, even as Michigan State were scoring touchdowns. Everyone was confused. What is going on? And the reason for the cheering and applause was that at the same time, Wisconsin's Major League Baseball team, the Milwaukee Brewers, were playing in Game 4 of the World Series, and many of the fans in the crowd were tuned in to the baseball game on their radios, and they were cheering as the Brewers were scoring. And you can imagine how odd this was for the opposing team as they were winning the home crowd, cheering and responding to the news of victory beyond what was happening in front of their very own eyes. They were living with faith, cheering with joy, even in the face of defeat, hopeless circumstances, because their hearts and their minds were tuned to a different frequency, a greater reality beyond what they were seeing right in front of them. Friends, we cannot know. We cannot predict the roll of the dice. We cannot predict the tragedies of life. We cannot predict, see the challenges, the suffering, the doubts that will surely come. But what we can know, what we can see, is the cross of Christ. We see his intimate care there, his unwavering purpose, his commitment to us despite our sin there. That in our sin, in our suffering, in our pain, though we see only in part, we can walk with faith, with the utmost confidence that he will work out all things together for those that he holds in his hand to the glory of God our Father. Let's close our eyes and pray. If I can ask you at this moment to consider that your being here today, it's not an accident that you are here today. That you being here, sitting next to whoever it is that you're sitting, you could have been anywhere else today. But that you are here today, not because you were holy, not because you found the, the strength in yourself to, to make it out today. But you and I are here today because God loved you enough for you to be here today. God loves you enough that he has drawn you out to sit here today. You're not here by accident. God, we just gather here today. God, so many of us just coming from different places. But God, we, we gather with our brothers and sisters here some of us unsure what it is that you were doing. Some of us unsure if you're even real. 
And yet we understand that we are here only because you have called us here. That though we might not be able to understand what is happening in our lives, that when we see the cross of Christ, that what we see is your sovereign, your gentle, your tender hands, and that you hold us in your hands, and that nothing or no one can pry us out from under them. God, we love you so much. Help us to love you more. We pray all of this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.